Imagine you stand in the temple, surrounded by artifacts that have been baptized in gold, each item pointing to the one who makes this place sacred. Each item speaks of a unique way we engage the holy. There near the center is a curtain, a veil woven with blues and purples, which reveals the majesty and grandeur of the one who dwells behind it. Like those placed at the garden, embroidered within are angels, mighty spiritual beings which guard the way. It separates the common from the glorious. It holds back the light from devastating the darkness. Those who approach are few and always at a distance. At the cost of blood, they were always drawing near, but never close, reaching out but never touching the weight of God's glory amplified by the holiness of his character. But in the death of Christ, that veil was torn. By the blood of Christ, the way was opened. Not so we could go to him, but so that he could come to us. The glory of God vacating the temple, the holy God making a home, A new sacred space purified not by the sacrifice of man, but God. We would become that home, that sacred space, that holy place. This is sanctification. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, gift uh, called sanctification. And... uh, I just pray that as we open up your word and we study the book of Romans, uh, that just like we could, would see that we are forgiven and that your grace allows us to have the relationship with you that we were created to have in this life and the next, so we would see the transforming power of your grace to change us and make us new. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Several uh, years ago, while we were still uh, living in Lansing, uh, before Northwest, uh, before children, before all of that, that stuff that changed for us, we used to do a fair amount of dog sitting for a woman that attended our last church. Uh, she had these two uh, Bichon Friezes, um, lovely, cute little demon dogs, um, uh, named, uh, named Joey and Charlie. And we really actually liked, I'm kind of teasing a little bit, we really liked watching these dogs. They were really cute dogs. But one morning in particular, uh, I was getting ready for work, not to set a disturbing scene or whatever, but I was in workout shorts, I'd just gotten out of the shower, was just kind of contemplating getting ready, and I hear Joey and Charlie barking at the back door. I'm like, oh, they, they need to go out. And so I go and I, I let them out and I walk outside with them, and all of a sudden, without thinking, the door slams shut on me. No key, no cell phone, no nothing, me, workout shorts, that's the story. All right? that, that's what's going on. And so I try to open windows, I try to j- open the door, I, I'm locked out. And so I go to a couple neighbors' houses that n- nobody is answering, everybody's uh, already at work, I, I didn't know what to do. There was a church across the way. And so finally, in shame, I walked over to that church 
walked in and talked to the secretary, workout shorts, no shoes, no nothing. I said, could I use your phone? And she was gracious and she was kind and she snickered a little bit. I saw it. She didn't think I saw it, but I saw it. <laughs> and she let me use the phone and I called uh, my wife for help to come uh, bring me a key so that I could get into the house. To this day, when I look back on it, I even hesitate to tell the story a little bit. It is one of the most uncomfortable moments that I've had of just walking out there kind of exposed, needing help and all that. It was so uncomfortable for me. And this is where Paul is going next. Uh, we, we've been singing about grace a lot, and I, I've loved it because Paul has been building this symphony of grace in the book of Romans, one chapter after another about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now what he's going to address uh, in, in Romans uh, 6 is this idea that people are getting uncomfortable. People are uncertain about this idea of grace. And the Greek word that Paul most uses for, for grace is the word charis. Uh, and the word literally, it just means a favor done without expectation of return, absolute freeness and kindness of a loving God, an unearned and unmerited gift. And that sounds a lot like what we've been talking about in Romans 1 through 5, doesn't it? That not because of what I've done, not because of how good I've been, not how awesome I am, but because of Jesus and his greatness and his majesty and his awesomeness, we are forgiven. We are justified. We are set free. We are saved. And it is an incredible message. And you would think that people would love a message like that, that there is a way to have your sins forgiven. That there is a way to know you are right with God. There is a way to know where you are going to spend your eternal life. There is a way. And you would think a message like what Paul is saying in Matthew 1 through 5 would bring joy and peace and happiness. And to a certain extent, it does, as we're going to talk about in a minute. But there is a flip side to grace, is there not? Whenever I speak about it here or at any other church for that matter, this is just a human nature thing. When you begin to discuss grace, there comes a palpable tension in the room. Because whether we want to admit it or not, and I get if we don't want to admit it, whether we want to admit it or not, we get uncomfortable with grace. And I think that there is a couple reasons why we get uncomfortable. One is, and I hope I'm not airing all of our dirty laundry here, but we tend to be a little bit judgmental when it comes to grace. Here's what I mean by that. When it comes to my sin, I deserve grace. I deserve mercy. I deserve to be forgiven. There are reasons for why I deserve it. But you, on the other hand, it's not looking so good for you. Right? This is our mentality, that you deserve judgment. You deserve condemnation. You, you deserve punishment. We all tend to think this way. This is why when grace comes to me, it's beautiful. And when grace comes to somebody else, it's scandalous. So let me give you a, a, a kind of not recent in the news, but recent in terms of uh, streaming services that you might have. A lot of people have been talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. Right? I've not seen the Netflix thing not recommending it, all right? I, I, I have no idea about it, I've, I've not watched it. But you may remember Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer from the 1990s. And I remember back in the 1990s, because I was just kind of coming into ministry age and Bible college and all of that stuff, there came out a story about Jeffrey Dahmer in prison, and the news was that he had given his life to Christ. This news was met with great suspicion, uh, great skepticism. 
In the Christian environments that I was in at, at the time, it was even met with great uh, outrage, I guess would be the word you would choose there. The idea that this man, are you serious? Jeffrey Dahmer, that he could be forgiven, that he could be shown grace, that he could be set free. The idea, just, it's offensive, right? Just the idea of thinking about that makes us uncomfortable and it riled a lot of people. Two years later, after this reported conversion of Christ, Jeffrey Dahmer was beaten to death in prison. And to be totally honest with you, when that happened, a large segment of our population celebrated it. You see what happens here? He comes under grace, there's outrage, he receives punishment, there's celebration. And, and we, can be, we can all be this way, I'm not pointing fingers here at all, we can all be this way when it comes to grace. And I am fast coming to, coming to the conclusion that grace will never have its full beauty and I will never fully understand grace or be able to celebrate grace until I learn to celebrate it in you. And you learn to celebrate it in me. It's too easy to celebrate it in me. Because we all tend to think about ourselves. It's human nature. But I don't think I can fully understand the gravity of grace. Or appreciate the beauty of it. Or come to a place where I'm celebrating it. Until I psychologically and spiritually learn to celebrate it in you. That your sins have been forgiven. That you have been made right with God. That your eternity is secured. That I have to learn to not just celebrate it for me. I have to learn to celebrate it for others. Now, so there's that judgmental piece of us is there. And it's there in everybody. The other thing is that we get suspicious about when it comes to grace is the reason that Paul gives in chapter 6 verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? This is the pushback Paul is getting on grace. That Paul, when you're talking about it's not anything I have done, it's what Jesus has done, it's not my effort, it's his, it's not my awesomeness, it's his awesomeness. Paul, when you talk about that, here's what people are going to hear. Oh, it's on. Sinapalooza. Right? It is time to go after some sins. It is time to engage in sin. It is time to have a license to sin, a license to do whatever I want to do. And, and people were concerned that the, the people Paul was preaching to were hearing this message that, oh, I get it, Paul. Because of grace, God doesn't care about what I do, or God doesn't care about the choices that I make, or God doesn't care about obedience. And Paul's message here, as we read it in a, in, in a little bit, is going to be, no, that's not true. God does care about those things, but he cares in a different order than we care. All right? And here's what I mean by that, is we tend to think, well, all right, so I've got to obey the law. I've got, I've got to follow the commands. I've got to do all of this stuff so that I'll be saved. And Paul says, no, 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 you've got it in the wrong order. And I think a lot of us secretly kind of believe that lie, whether we want to admit it or not, that we are saved by our obedience. So yeah, Paul, you got to teach people to obey, got to teach people to follow the law so that they'll go to heaven when they die. They'll be made right with God. It's how they become Christians. And God stands there through Paul and says, no, you have it in the wrong order. I don't want you to obey so you'll become my child. That's done through the work of Jesus. I want you to obey because you are my child. Because I love you. Because I know it's best for you. I want you to obey because you trust me. I want you to obey because we're in a relationship. 
When I was uh, growing up in Michigan, um, I've uh, taken my kids out there before, and they're always like, you are not lying. You grew up in the middle of nowhere, right? We, we, were, we were, the first time I ever took Lila out there, Sam's been out a couple times, we're driving out there, and Lila in the back just kind of quietly goes, where are you taking us? Uh, and yeah, I don't know what she thought was happening, but I mean, I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. And we had this barn next to our house. And one of my favorite childhood memories is we would go out to that barn and we would swing on a rope and we would land in hay. And my friends and I did this for hours, swing on the rope, land in hay. One afternoon, my dad came out there and he was just kind of inspecting the rope. And he said, no more rope for a while. We've got to fix this rope. It's really frayed at the top. You can see where it's frayed. Someone's going to fall and get hurt. No more rope. And I had struggles with obedience as a kid. I know you might find that hard to believe, but I did. Um, I had struggles with obedience. And so pretty much the minute Dad left the barn, I started swinging on the rope. And sure enough, that rope snapped, and I fell, and I twisted and hurt my ankle really, really badly. And I tried to cover it up, but I was hobbled. So I'm like, huh? Dad's like, did you hurt your ankle? No, no, it's, it's fine. And, and finally, I came clean. Let me tell you what Dad did not do. My dad did not say, you are no longer worthy to be called my son. What on earth were you doing? You're out of the family, right? That's not what he said at all. He said, I wish you hadn't done that. And now, now you know why I told you not to do that. Because I didn't want you to be hurt. But this is the heart of God. He wants us to obey, not so we'll become his children. Becoming his children doesn't come through obedience. It comes through grace. We're going to talk about this next week. We are adopted into the family. So, so he doesn't do it so that we will become his children. He does it because we are. That's why he cares about obedience. And I've told you this kind of way of thinking about this before, that I tell my kids what to do. I don't tell yours. Right? My kids get tired of me telling them what to do sometimes. But I, I don't run around bossing your kids around. Right? Uh, I, I boss mine around and I enjoy it deeply. Um, but I, I, do that, I do that because they're my kids. And I love them and I want, want, want what's best for them. I love, I love your kids too, but you, you get the difference, right? They're my kids. I need to boss them around. It's the orders that God gave me as a parent. So, now all that being said, there is a little bit of a temptation sometimes to abuse grace, isn't there? Sometimes there is a temptation to do that, to do exactly what Paul writes in this text, to continue to sin that grace may increase. Hey, I'm forgiven. It's all under the blood, man. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. We're going to sin a little bit more, right? It's easy to do that. And I've heard a number of people in my ministry come to me in a kind of moment of honesty and say, I know what's wrong, Steve. I know what I'm proposing is wrong. I know I shouldn't do it. I know that God's word is against it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm like, why would you do it anyway? And they're like, I'm just going to count on God's grace to forgive, forget, to forgive it. And I want you to see what Paul's response here is. Paul's response to that idea is different than a lot of our response to that idea. Historically, the church's response to that idea is to threaten people with hell, right? To kind of dangle hell over them, the threat of hell, the threat you're not going to go to heaven, you better obey, and to try to scare people into obedience, into following Jesus and obeying Jesus. And listen, I believe in hell. Uh, I, I do. Jesus didn't dangle that very often, though. When you, when you study the, the New Testament, he didn't dangle hell very often. More often, what he did was he gave an invitation. And he said, here's what I'm inviting you. I am inviting you to follow me. Follow me. 
follow me. And so every once in a while, he'd mention help. But more often, he would say, hey, follow me. Be in a relationship with me. I love you. I'm not going to steer you wrong. Obey me. Follow me. Make me your Lord. And I will lead you to life. And Paul's response is similar. It is not to kind of dangle hell over people's heads. The response of Paul in the text we're about to read. I know this feels like a real long introduction. The, the sermon's short after this, right? All right, but the, the idea of Paul is he wants to teach people what Jesus actually came to do and be. His response was to people that just were tempted to just sin and sin a palooza, let's have a party. It's all under the blood. It's under grace. His tempta- what Paul does is he teaches them that, of course, they're forgiven. They are forgiven, but God wants more for their than more for their life than that. Because if you get to the heart of the statement, let's continue to sin that grace may abound. If you really get what's at the bottom of that statement, it's this idea. I want Jesus to be my savior. I don't want him to be my Lord. And he's both. And as my grandfather used to say, I said, Grandpa, where did we come? Where did the Higgs come from? He said, we're rednecks from Tennessee. He always said, that's, that's what all you need to know. So I have no idea where that, that side of the family came from. But he always used to say, that dog won't hunt. <laughs> that dog won't hunt. He's not just Savior. He is Savior and Lord. So Jesus, forgive my sin, take me to heaven, but stay out of my life and, and the rest of it. That dog just won't hunt. And you can see when Jesus becomes your get-out-of-hell-free card, which he is for a lot of our culture. He's the, you know, I just want to make sure I'm going to kind of avoid hell. When he's your get-out-of-hell-free card, bring me into heaven card, it leads to this idea we see in our culture of, well, technically I believe, but I live however I want to live, and I do whatever I want to do, and I hope and I trust that Jesus will do what I think he's going to do, which is forgive my sin and take me to heaven. Jesus wants so much more for your life than that. I need you to know that. Yes, he came to save us and rescue us from hell in the next life. But can I tell you something, love? He also came to rescue us from hell in this life. He came to rescue you from the hell of having no purpose. He came to rescue you from the hell of having no joy. He came to rescue you from the hell of, having, uh, of being stuck in a generational sin with no hope of getting out. He came to rescue you from that hell. And he came to show us grace so that we could live with him in the next life, but he also came to show us grace so that we could enjoy him in this one. So Jesus isn't your cosmic get-out-of-hell-free card. He wants to work and be active in our lives right now. And can I tell you something? That's a grace too. It is easy for us to see Jesus the Savior as a grace giver. Oh man, my sins are forgiven. It's, it is awesome good news. That's why it's called good news. It's awesome news. My sins are forgiven. My future is secured. Uh, I am free to know God in this life and the next. It's easy to see it in the form of Savior, but it's harder to see grace in his lordship, but it's there. When he tells you what to do, when he commands you, when he disciplines you, it is an expression of his grace because he loves you. So finally, here's Romans 6, all right? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live with it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a, underline this if you underline in your Bible, to live a new life. That's sanctification. For if we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we are no longer slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ has been raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died once and once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, church, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign over your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him. We sang this today. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law. But look at this. You are under grace. Look at some of the language he uses in verse 5. Just like Jesus resurrected, we too are going to resurrect so that we can live new life. And verse 6, we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. So when people were saying, let's continue to sin that grace may abound, Paul says, you're missing it. Because God's grace doesn't just extend to the forgiveness of sins. God's grace extends to the annihilation of sins. Amen? That he has a desire to destroy and kill off the sin in our lives that are leading us astray, leading us to death, leading us to, to, to disaster. He has a desire to kill those things off so that we can enjoy a new life today. Not just someday, streets of gold and crystal sea, that's going to be a great life too. But he has a desire to kill those things off so that we can live a new life today. Why? So we'll be saved eternally? Well, sort of but also because he loves us and he hates sin and he wants to see us freed from it. So his grace does these two things. It forgives our sin and secures our future. And his grace empowers us and enables us to live a new and better life. Paul says, think of it this way. Remember your baptism, right? If you've been baptized, you can kind of Remember your baptism. If you've not been yet, we'd love to talk to you about that as well. But think about your baptism. One of my favorite baptisms ever, not that you want to have favorites, but one the most memorable baptisms ever was in northern Michigan in February. We were at a retreat. And this guy had been far from God, and he decided to give his life to Jesus. And he said, I, at this retreat, he was like, I want to be baptized right now. And we're like, well, listen, we, we don't have a baptistry that, that's heated. Let's get to the lower part of the peninsula where our church is. We'll turn the heater on for you. It'll be like a whirlpool. It'll be so lovely and great. He said, no, I want to be baptized right now. And we're like, well, there's only a frozen over lake. He's like, yeah. I want to be baptized right now. And we went over there with heaters and we chiseled the ice away. And in February in northern Michigan, this guy climbed into a hole in the ice, and was baptized into Christ. 
Remember your baptism. Paul says you went under the water symbolizing your death and you came out symbolizing your new life. What does that mean? Well, in one, day, in one way, baptism symbolizes the idea that someday we're all literally going to die. It comes for everybody. But because of Christ, we're going to raise again and we're going to live forever with him in heaven. But baptism isn't just that. It also symbolizes what Jesus wants to have, have happen in this life. He wants to see the sinful part of us that has a hold of us. He wants to see that die, and he wants to see you, a new you, live a new life, raised from the dead. And this is awesome news. He wants to see the angry part of you. He wants to see that killed off, and he wants to see the peaceful side of you resurrected. He wants to see the prideful part of you. He wants to see that died up, and he wants to see the humble side of you resurrect and live a new life. He wants to see the lustful side of you die off in that water. And he wants to see you raised to purity. Why? So that you'll be saved? No. Jesus saves you. He does that because he loves you. And he wants to see you live a new life. To say, hey, continue to sin. The grace may abound. You drink and be merry for tomorrow. Let's do it again. It doesn't understand grace literally at all. It has a myopic view of grace that Jesus is my get-out-of-hell-free card, and outside of that, stay out of my life, Jesus, and that is not what we're called to. We are called for him to be our Savior and our Lord. And beyond that, Paul says, that mindset sabotages the work that Jesus wants to do in our heart and in our minds today. I'm reminded of a story from your New Testament, the story of the rich young ruler And he comes to Jesus and he says, what good things must I do to inherit eternal life? He's looking for that get out of hell free card, right? Tell me what I need to do to go to heaven when I die. And Jesus says the most peculiar thing. He says, all you got to do is sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. Now here's the question of that text. Is Jesus changing the game? Right? That we've been under the impression that we are saved by grace, we are saved by mercy, we are saved by his work and not ours. And then Jesus is talking to this rich young ruler, and is he redefining the good news that we've spent five weeks talking about? That no, 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 no. In addition to grace, you have to sell all you have and give the money to the poor. No, we are saved by grace. I think Jesus is teaching this guy what Paul is teaching us today. That you don't get to just invite me in to take you to heaven when you die. You're inviting me. When you invite me in, I am Savior and Lord, dual threat. And he says, if you invite me in, there are some things that I want to begin addressing in you, he says to this young man. So Jesus says to him, in grace, I'd like to talk to you about your greed. I'd like to talk to you about your materialism. I'd like to talk to you about the role that stuff has in your life. And you know what the text says? He went away sad because he wanted to go to heaven, but he didn't actually want Jesus. And I wonder if sometimes we're the same way, if I can go from preaching to meddling just for a minute, that there are these things that we're like, no, 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 no. Jesus, off limits. Take me to heaven, stay away from my money. Take me to heaven, stay away from my marriage. Take me to heaven, don't mess with my kids. And it really just doesn't work that way. We accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, grace giver and commander, forgiver of sin, and my favorite, sin slayer, right? Sounds like an awesome nickname, doesn't it? I think we should go with it. 
sin slayer Jesus. And I think that's why we need to reevaluate the question we sometimes ask people as they're coming to church and they're coming to Jesus. Sometimes, when I was growing up, we used to do this thing. You guys probably remember this, and I've told you about this from my childhood before. Like, all right, we're going to break into teams, and we're going to go door to door, and we're going to knock on someone's door. And when they open the door, what you just say to them is, do you want to go to heaven when you die? You think about how weird that is. Right? If I, if I open the door today and someone's like, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Conversation's over, right? Stay away from my kids too, right? That sort of thing. No, we're not, we're not doing that. But that, back in the 80s, this was people just dropped by your house more. And so this was more acceptable. But we used to ask, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And we found out that that was a deficient question. And the reason it was a deficient question is, what was everyone's answer to that question? Yeah. <laughs> Right? Unless you are a hard-nosed unbeliever that has absolutely no interest. If someone walks up to you and says, do you wish to go to heaven? Even if they don't believe in heaven, if there's a heaven, I do wish to go there. And what, they, what we discovered as I was growing up is it also doesn't get to the heart of Jesus. Let me show you a better question to ask up on the screen for you. It's not, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want Jesus? Yes, do you want his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness? Yes. But also, do you want his commands? Do you want his Holy Spirit and the power to change? Do you want him to help you kill off sin? Do you want this Jesus who upon invitation comes into our lives and begins to meddle? In the most beautiful, incredible way, he begins to meddle. And he begins to address. And he begins to... Uh, cause us to think second thoughts about things that have always been in our lives. He begins to attack what needs to be attacked and kill what needs to kill. And it's not always fun. It's not always pleasant. It does always lead to a better life. And this is the Jesus Paul is describing. It's not just the heaven, heaven, heaven. He's not up there with the stamper thing. He's going to invite me in. Yeah, heaven's part of it for sure. Invite me in. And let me start to convict a little bit. Let me meddle a little bit. Let me get to the root of some things a little bit. And maybe you're here today and you're looking back on your family's history and you say, well, I struggle with this. But my dad struggled with it. His dad struggled with it. His dad struggled with it. Or I struggle with this, but my mom struggled with it. Her mom struggled with it. Her mom, everybody in our family struggles with it. You know what it sounds like to me? Your family doesn't know how to overcome it. I'm sure your family's great, but they don't know what to do. You know who does? Jesus. He knows. He knows how to help you overcome. He's capable of empowering you. And I have seen this time and time again in my, in my ministry where someone's like, my dad was angry, his dad was angry, and his dad was angry, and I'm angry. And they give it all to Jesus. Jesus starts to meddle. They get some counsel, Christian counseling and some help. They see a pastor. They begin to pray. And all of a sudden, they are overcoming things that their dad couldn't overcome and his dad couldn't overcome. But they are. Why? Jesus. Jesus. Look at verse 14. I love this. For sin shall not be your master. Because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. This is such good news, guys. Sin does not have to be your master. 
I know your dad struggled with it. I know your mom struggled with it. I know your uncle struggled with it. Your grandpa, your grandma, whoever. I know the family legacy stuff. I've got it too. Everybody does. But the gospel tells us sin is no longer your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Which is why this idea of just rubber stamp me for heaven and kind of be done with the, the rest of it is so offensive to God. Because he's like, I thought we were like, I thought what the gospel was, we were changing masters here. Right? That you were under this master called sin, and now you're under this master called Christ. And because God is our master, he can lead us to new life. When you read on uh, to the rest of Romans 6, verses 15 through 23, Paul will go on to describe that God is our master. We are his slaves. We are his servants. And I think when you think about the relationship between master and servant, the servant has the responsibility to obey the master in everything to the best of his or her ability. And Paul says that's what happens when you move from the master called sin to the master called Christ. It's a transfer of obedience. All of a sudden, I desire to obey this master called Christ, God. I desire to obey him fully. I desire to do what he says. But a good master has responsibilities as well. A good master gives the servant everything he needs to do the job he has commanded him to do. So this is not our God where he's like, you need to stop doing that. All right, next, right? He, he's not that kind of, he's not Dr. Phil, right? Have you ever watched Dr. Phil where he just comes in and he's like, I don't think you ought to be doing that anymore, right? Yeah, that's not, that, that's not it. We, I, yeah, I'm here because I know I shouldn't be doing it. That's not God. That, that was a pretty good impression, right? That, that, <laughs> that sounds like a bunch of horse manure, right? That, so that, that's not God, God says, I don't want you to do that anymore. Let me give you my Holy Spirit. Let me give you my word. Let me give you the bride of Christ called the church. Let me give you everything that you need to overcome the thing that I want you to overcome. And he leans into us. So what does that mean? When sin is your master, you're under its control. Sin's the same way. When you're under sin, sin will give you everything you need to do the job it wants you to do. Have you ever noticed that? Like I wasn't even looking for it and I found it right? Uh, spoiler alert for new parents, you're not going to have to teach your kids to sin, by the way. They're going to figure it out on their own, right? Because sin as a master, does, it, gives us every, it gives us opportunity, resources, everything we need to live the life it wants us to live. And God is the same way. When you become servants of Christ and he becomes your master, he'll give you everything you need to live the life he has called you to live. Everything. And this is how generational sin gets broken. It is. It is the power of Christ unto salvation. And a lot of families just rinse and repeat again and again and again. Sin is no longer your master. Christ is. Lean into him and he will give you everything that you need to overcome that life because he loves you. Not so that you'll be his child. You're his child through grace. He does this because you are. And he disciplines you because you are his child. He doesn't discipline people that aren't his kids. He disciplines you because you are his child. He leads you because he is your shepherd because you are his sheep. It's because, not so. He does it because we are his, not so that we will be his. So should we continue to sin that grace may increase? Paul says, by no means. 
Because to invite Jesus in is to invite him in as Savior and as Lord. And yeah, of course, don't hear me undoing five weeks of work. Of course he wants to forgive our sins. Of course he wants to give us eternal life. That is all part of it. But he wants to do this work to begin to lean into our sin. It's called sanctification, if you want a big fancy word for it. To lean into our sin, to kill it off, and to make us better people. So I want you to think about that temple image just for a minute as we close. In the Old Testament, the high priest would come into the temple in the Old Testament and he'd offer sacrifices. He did this to obey the law, to be in adherence to the law so that the people of God could live. So he'd come into the temple with that lamb without blemish that we talked about. He'd come in and uh, he'd he'd kill that lamb off. And he'd use its blood to bring redemption and grace to the people of God. So here's the high priest's role in the temple. He brings death so that the people of God can live. That is the role of the high priest. He enters the temple to bring death so that life can happen. In the New Testament imagery, Jesus is the high priest and we are the temple. As the people of God, we are the temple. And the law has been satisfied because of the work of Jesus. But Jesus, the high priest, comes into the temple, you and I, and he brings death. Not to us. We're saved by grace. He brings death to sin. Death to its hold on us. Death to addiction. Death to generational sin. Death to everything. He, He brings that death so that the people of God can live. That's why he does it. And this is part of his role as the high priest. He says, let me come into the temple, just like happened in the Old Testament. Let me come into the temple and let me bring death. Not to us, again, but to the sins that bind us and hold us and keep us from life. So that my people can find life and joy and peace and contentment. So that they can find life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sanctification. We thank you for justification to be sure too, um, that we are saved by grace and that you you are preparing a place for us. We're grateful. But today we want to think a little bit about sanctification. Not just your role as Savior, but your role as Lord and what you want to do as Lord. So right now, as your people, as we're preparing to receive communion and to remember your work on the cross, would you, would you convict the room right now, all of us? And would you just lay an impression on us of, man, let's go after this this week. This thing that you've kept hidden, this thing that you don't want anyone to know about, this thing that's keeping you from the life you really want to live, let's go after it. I'll help you and empower you and convict you and discipline you and resource you. But let's go to war on this thing. Not so that we'll be saved. We are saved by grace. But because we are and because you love us and because you want new life for us, it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together right now.
and you'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has a, a cup representing his blood. And it's just an opportunity for us to marvel at his grace, but to not be single-minded on it either, right? That because of grace, our sins are forgiven, justification, but because of grace, we can overcome our sins, sanctification. And so we want to remember the work that Jesus came to do and thank him for the work. So our, our uh, servers are going to pass them out, and then I'll come back up, and we'd like to receive it all together as a church family in just a few minutes. His body given for you. His blood poured out for our justification and for our sanctification. God, we thank you. May we walk in your grace now and forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Paul in Romans 6 has been talking a little bit here about the idea of uh, servitude and Christ being our master, God being our master, not, not sin. And then next week he's going to shift to kind of set the t- dinner table a little bit. He sets the stage to adoption. He's going to shift the language to adoption and how sin used to be the family we were a part of and now God has adopted us uh, into his family. And obviously it's a much better family. And some people think that those metaphors are a little bit contradictory of being a servant and, and being adopted or, or, or just being family altogether. But those of you that are in healthy families, you know um, that families are expected to serve one another. Healthy, healthy families are. And so um, this has been on my mind a couple days ago. Just tell the story because he's in kid zone. And I can't tell this next week, but um, uh, my son Sam. So one of, one of his chores uh, as a member of the family is to clear the table uh, after, after dinner. And so the other day he didn't want to do it and we were kind of forcing him to do it. So he starts clearing the table and about halfway through he goes uh, to my wife. He's like, I just don't understand why I have to do everything around here. <laughs> um, and I thought he was going to come to an early demise. I, I thought, uh, <laughs> I said, like, yeah, bud, you're, you're doing it all for sure. <laughs> My mom and I are doing jack squat, so um, <laughs> that uh, taking the uh, dishes that three feet is a real, real tough thing. So, um, but yeah, of, of course, you know, families, families serve, right? They, they, they serve one another. And so the idea of servitude and family, those are not contradictory at all. They're actually married to each other. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to see that next week as we talk about adoption. Go, go ahead and stand up and uh, let's close with one last song.